There are 79 countries that have blasphemy laws um, and a number of them that have what they call hate speech laws that fall under the blasphemy, which is the same kind. It's rooted in the same, same premise. And it just so, uh, among other things, among a violate, in addition to a violation of human rights, you can't have self-government, you can't have democracy. Mm-hmm. If you hand the, the keys of the kingdom over to the state and what can and can't be said, Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights and expression. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the show. I am, as always, your host, Nico Perino. A quick note before we get started. Today's conversation is with Kristen Wagner. She is the president, CEO, and general counsel of the Alliance Defending Freedom, which, as some of you might know, is a Christian public interest law firm that litigates around issues of religious freedom, marriage, family, and parental rights, and pro-life issues. But for the purposes of this podcast and this conversation, we are focused on ADF's involvement in litigation surrounding free speech issues, particularly where there is some sort of nexus with religious conviction. The firm is incredibly effective and somewhat controversial. On the effective side, it has played various roles in something like 74 Supreme Court victories, and since 2011 has won 15 times at the Supreme Court. Now, on the controversial side, among its most high-profile cases are those involving the overturning of Roe v. Wade, a challenge to the Affordable Care Act's mandate that birth control be made available in employee health plans. This is that 2014 Hobby Lobby case. And also a recent challenge to the FDA's approval of mifeprestone. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's a common medical abortion drug. ADF has also taken on high-profile and controversial free speech cases, which are the subject of this conversation. These include the recent Supreme Court case involving a web designer who didn't want to be compelled to design wedding websites for same-sex weddings. But before that, they also litigated the 2018 Masterpiece Cake Shop case involving a cake designer who similarly didn't want to provide his services for same-sex weddings on religious grounds. This is a free speech podcast, so the focus of this conversation, as I said, is on ADF's free speech work. But we also discussed some of ADF's litigation tactics, and I asked Kristen to respond to some criticisms of those tactics and recent allegations that ADF's cases are fake. In fact, between when Kristen and I originally recorded this conversation in FIRE's DC office and when we plan to publish it, The Washington Post and The New Yorker both published big articles featuring criticisms of ADF's approach. So I didn't want to publish this show without first addressing those articles. So at the end of the episode, we feature a short follow-up conversation or segment with Kristen in which she responds to the articles, namely, again, the article's assertions that the cases are perhaps fake. So hang on till the end to see... Kristen addressed those articles. And now, without further ado, let's get on to the show. Okay, Kristen Wagner, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So you are the Alliance Defending Freedom's President and General Counsel, correct? And CEO. And CEO. Too many titles. Sometimes I'm, I'm I, hoping to shed some of those at some point. but <laughs> I've never actually asked FIRE's President and CEO, Greg Lukianoff, what the distinction is between President and CEO. Yeah. You know, I know when you talk about organizations like uh, the ACLU, for example, they have the executive director who's in charge of day-to-day management, and then you have uh, the president who's essentially the chairman or the chairwoman of the board, right? So is it is it kind of like a figurehead 
and a day-to-day -day manager role? Is that the delineation between the two? Not really. I mean, our we're structured a little differently in that, for example, the president and CEO isn't on the board. Um, okay. There is a board chair. Um, in terms of the role president and CEO, I tend to think of it as president is often fundraising, yeah. external, ministry friend oriented, mm -hmm. whereas CEO is day to day. Um, and then general counsel for us is something a little different than what you would think of in most um, nonprofits or even for profits. Mm -hmm. It really is just the sort of the lawyer that is in some ways serving the ministry or the corporation and mm -hmm. giving that advice. But also for us, it's been seen as sort of the, the top lawyer that's going to make the final final calls, calls. Um, but I'm hoping to shed that general counsel here very soon uh, with a new chief legal officer that we have. There you go. Well, you have a lot on your plate. I was just looking at your bio and you you have 400 ADF team members. Over that, yeah. yeah. Seven global offices, 4,700 network attorneys, and you provide legal resources to 4,000 churches and ministries. So you've got <laughs> quite a bit going on. I want to, and, and you also, you know, as general counsel, argue some of um, ADF's biggest cases, right? And the, you guys have won 15 cases at the Supreme Court. You were involved most recently, right, in the 303 Creative Violinist case, uh, which I want to talk about on this podcast. Okay. So, you know, how do you how do you kind of balance all that? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I think in terms of the oral arguments, we have had 15 wins, and I've been able to be a part of 14 of them in one way or another. And it's just been such a privilege. But nothing I expected necessarily when I joined ADF. I mean, it just feels like the issues that we're involved in ramped up so quickly. So I came out of private practice after about 16 years. Mm -hmm. And when I joined, I mean, it just immediately escalated in terms of issues. So I've argued three um, since I've been here. And I, I don't think I'll argue another one for a while. We have plenty of other lawyers that will do a, a wonderful job and want to ensure that they have the opportunity. And I kind of have my hands full right now in the yeah. CEO role. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was, I'm wondering. Um, what's your path to ADF? Like, where'd you grow up? What were you, what'd you think you were going to do when you were in school? Um, how, how'd you get here? I, I've always thought I would be a lawyer. Um, so when I was a young girl, um, it, it's kind of, Ironic when I look back on it and just create such respect for my father because I grew up in a very small town We didn't have any college graduates in our family other than my dad. He was an educator mm -hmm. um, I grew up in a Christian family very very conservative and so it would be I think at that time even unusual to see uh, Or to think of a woman perhaps going into law and in, in that season in the 80s um, in kind of the areas where I, I was growing up and yet my dad was just con convicted that I had a vocational calling on my life and just pounded that into me in terms of you need to figure out what it is. You've got giftings, you've got skills. Um, and so from about the time I was 12 on, I knew that I wanted to practice law. But did you think you would be practicing, practicing this sort of law? I did, actually. Really? Um, yes. Which it's just, I... Not doing estate planning? Or? No, no, <laughs> no desire for that. Um, but when I, when I was 12, um, I, I really did feel called into... Um, defending religious freedom, defending free speech, churches, religious organizations. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just what I pursued from that time on. A lot of bumps, a lot of turns in the road. It didn't go just as I expected it. Um, I figured I would be at a public interest firm like ADF from the get-go. Mm -hmm. And that's just not the hand I was dealt. Um, and now, looking back, I, I see why. Um, I'm grateful for that time in private practice that I had. What did you do in private 
practice? It was the same sort of same sort of work. Um, kind of, sorta. Uh, n- that's not a very fancy way of saying it. But it, <laughs> it um, it's interesting how it played out because my first case that I had in private practice at a firm was one involving religious freedom. It was a bivocational pastor mm-hmm. who um, essentially met with a young man who was troubled and in a moment of crisis. His young son was in the hospital. They thought it was shaken baby syndrome. And the state was trying to compel the pastor to reveal what those conversations had been between that father. Um, So it was the penitent privilege that was at stake. And that was the first case I had. And um, the reason that I got put on it right away was um, to help with the briefs was because I had clerked at the Washington Supreme Court and that's where it was heading. Gotcha. The penitent privilege, there are just a few professions vocations in the world that where you get that sort of privilege, right? right? It's right. lawyers, you know, right. priests, clergy. Um, um, Washington State wanted to apply it to some faiths but not others. Um, and really, so, what's the justification for that? Well, they suggested that, you know, sort of the Protestant um, faith didn't take it essentially as a sacrament of confession, even though they believed it was a confidential setting and that spiritual counseling was a part of the priest's duty or the pastor's duty to receive that and counsel, that essentially if it wasn't a part of the sacrament like the Catholic Church confession is, that it just didn't meet the standard for the priest penitent privilege. Oh, wow. And thankfully, the Washington Supreme Court rejected that. I don't know that they would today, but they did back, uh, I think it was early, late 90s that that went up. You talk about private practice and then coming over and doing the public interest work that you do at ADF. Now, do you find it hard to build build out your team of 400 and however many attorneys you have? Because the sort of work that you guys do, and in fact, the sort of work that we do, First Amendment work, often often defending people who don't have a ton of money mm-hmm. uh, and can't defend themselves, particularly when you're talking about political speech or, in your case, perhaps representing a... Um, a, a campus preacher who's going campus to campus and reading the gospel, um, you know, there's, since there's not a lot of money in it, there's not a lot of private practices that, that do that work, right? And so when, often when we get attorneys aboard, we're having to spend a lot of time you know, teaching them mm-hmm. or mentoring them, I should say, on that work. Have you had that, those, those issues? We have. I, I think one of the things, before we move off of my experience in private practice, that was helpful to me was I had a, a wide practice. Many of my clients were religious organizations. But, I mean, I've got the craziest stories, right? Yeah. i got a lot of crazy stories. <laughs> um, dealing with employment issues, with volunteer issues, all of those things. And then um, I practice in commercial law as well. At, at our firm, uh, for your first six years, you were kind of thrown into the deep end of everything. And about year four, you started to say, okay, I want to go this direction or that direction. Um, and that really helped prepare me, I think, helped develop judgment and the ability to say things on your feet and think through issues and that kind of thing. Um, But I also could do this other work involving free speech and religious freedom in part because ADF had a grant program. We still have that program where if the case is aligned with the mission that we have, um, attorneys who are in private practice can apply for a grant in order to litigate their case Mm. and in some way have that be supplemented. So I could go to my partners and I could say, you don't have to take the 100% hit on this as pro bono. Um, instead, we'll get 200 bucks an hour or something like that. So that actually gave me some experience that I otherwise wouldn't have had. And we continue with that program. But I 
you're spot on right in terms of bringing in those who haven't practiced in the area and the learning curve that exists. But I still think good judgment is critical. Yeah, I mean, there are transferable skills, uh, of course, but, you know, a lot of the First Amendment work that happens in private practice or corporate practice is related to media, for example. It's doing um, reviews for news publications before they go to press, or it's... um, you know, reviewing for fair use on documentaries. I made a documentary, so I know <laughs> how important that work can be and how much of it there can be uh, in the film world. Not a lot of it is like our case today, for example, where we defended two animal rights activists who were handcuffed and kicked out of a public park for uh, showing videos in that public park. You know, this is, those are folks who often just don't have the money to buy really expensive attorneys and, and see a case from start to completion, which can often be years, if not in some cases like a decade. Usually it's years. Yeah, right? (laughs) So the interesting thing about you all is that you have an international focus and mandate too. So can you talk to me a little bit about that? I've always wondered how nonprofits manage a kind of organization with an international focus and international team members. It's great fun, and I'm learning so much in this. So this is my, I'm completing my first year as CEO and president. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, I was general counsel, but mainly my focus was on the U.S. legal side. I was responsible for all that was happening in the legislative and and litigation component of the U.S. side. So it's been a great learning curve for me this year, but also such a privilege to have a bird's eye view of of the international team. Um, I think it presents a a really unique sort of platform to look down and see how global censorship trends are playing out. Mm -hmm. And we tend to think of our space as just our space. But yet, when you look at what's happening around the world, we're so globalized that you start to pick up patterns. And I've seen that in the international side. And also just the work that we do, I mean, it's not just about, and it's important, you know, to ensure that speech isn't chilled, you know, that censorship doesn't occur anywhere. But yet we're seeing that whole cycle complete itself where people are literally facing the death penalty in other countries for things they've said under blasphemy laws. And you can trace that back through the hate speech laws and I think through some of the efforts we're seeing here in the U.S. um, where that's going to end up if we don't stop it. Well, you have one case that's ongoing uh, that I'm sorry to say I wasn't familiar with uh, until your team alerted me to it, but it involves a uh, Finnish parliament member whose name... Pivey. Pivey. Uh, You'll have to forgive me. I didn't know how to pronounce it. A Finnish parliament member who's an outspoken Christian um, who came under investigation for tweeting a quote from the Book of Romans that upholds the Christian view of marriage as being between uh, a man and a woman. And she was brought up, it looks like, on three separate charges uh, of incitement against a minority group. And uh, also the charges fall under a chapter of Finnish law which criminalizes, quote, war crimes and crimes against humanity. And each charge of the three, it sounds like, can, can result in a prison sentence of up to two years. So can you talk to me about that case and where it stands now? I can, yes. Um, and actually, just a couple of weeks ago, we had the appeal. Unlike in the system here in the U.S., you can be exonerated at the trial court level on criminal charges, and the prosecutor in Finland can actually appeal that, and you can have to go to trial all over again at the appellate level. Oh, you can still do that here in the United States, where (laughs) if you're on campus and get charged with uh, certain things. True, true, true. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) But yeah, I noticed that. I was like, wait, okay, she was acquitted in 2022 on all three charges, but the prosecution is now appealing the non-guilty verdict. It's Orwellian. I mean, so so first of all, in terms of our model at um, ADF International, we 
we continue to use that model where when there are charges brought up in the nations themselves, we come in as the international experts. So, you know, think about international treaties that are in place, the European Convention of Human Rights. Mm -hmm. All of those laws provide protections for countries abroad. And so we bring the expertise to help those local attorneys, like the attorney in Finland, um, litigate those cases and apply those treaties in the right way and protect the rights of, of litigants. And then we also hire individuals in those countries, in certain countries as well, that can appear at the international tribunals. So in Paivi's case in Finland, um, we have a, an attorney that's serving on the legal team in that case and has from the beginning, but the story is just shocking mm -hmm. in that um, Paivi Rasanan is a member of the Finnish parliament. She has been for nearly 30 years. She was just reelected in 2023. She served as the minister of interior for the government. Um, she's a doctor, a physician by trade. She's a pastor's wife. Um, just a wonderful woman and has been in public life forever. And so what happened was in 2019, she tweeted out something that was directed towards her church because her church had said they were going to essentially sponsor the gay pride parade. Mm -hmm. And she said, I don't see how this aligns with my church's beliefs and the Bible, and then captured a picture of the verse in Romans. That caused the authorities to launch a full-bore investigation into every statement she'd ever made throughout her public life. They went back to a 2004 pamphlet that she had written on marriage and, and the sexual ethic, the biblical sexual ethic. It was published by a, a bishop as well. He was also charged in this case for mm -hmm. just publishing the booklet. Um, so they charged her for the tweet. They charged her for the booklet that she wrote in 2004, which is seven years before this law was even put in place. Wow. And then they charged her, they took a snippet of about one minute from a radio interview she did in 2019. They went deep on um, her. <laughs> and, and I mean, and you're missing the whole context. Like in the radio interview, she talks about um, everyone's of equal dignity, of e equal, I mean, mm -hmm. they just completely strip it all of context um, and have pursued her. Is that something Finland has done in the past or is this kind of a new trend there where they're applying these these statutes against war crimes and crimes against humanity to, in this case, religious speakers? It's, it seems to be a new trend. I mean, Finland seems just as shocked. I think initially when the press reports started coming out, there was skepticism towards Paivi and thinking something mm -hmm. must be, really be crazy about what she was saying or, you know, something's off here. But as the facts came out in the trial, I think you've seen either the media either shift to being neutral on it or to being... Um, strongly in favor of Pivey, realizing that this is a very vague, very subjective law that the government is using to censor speech and really to put the biblical sexual ethic on trial. Like literally, these witnesses are being asked about Christian theology and told that, and the standard is whether it was insulting for her to simply apply her faith in that context and to speak about it. Do you represent clients who are not Christian? Yes. Most of your cases, I'm assuming, are, are Christian clients or speakers? Most of them are because, you know, those are the type of inquiries that we get. And we are religious ministry, so our team members all sign a statement of faith. But okay. we do represent non-believers, and we file plenty of amicus briefs um, in other cases, too. For, for our listeners, because we have listeners from across the political, ideological, or professional spectrum, what does it mean to be a ministry? It means you ascribe to a certain set of values? Yes, yeah, so um, we believe that everyone should have the right to be able to freely practice their faith mm -hmm. and to speak freely, regardless of what their viewpoints are, which does mean that we're going to support cases where viewpoints are articulated that might not be consistent with our faith. But 
Every team member, when they join ADF, they sign a statement of faith that mm -hmm. is essentially the Apostles' Creed, um, which is just, you would think of Orthodox Christianity and those beliefs. So we have a widespread among our 450 team members of, um, there are many in the Catholic faith, many of all kinds of Protestant denominations too. Gotcha. I want to talk about the trends we're seeing in Europe. We, we saw, I think, what was it, last month, that Denmark, Danish government, which has long opposed blasphemy laws, um, state that they plan to criminalize uh, Quran burnings uh, in, that, in that country. And uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs announced that it, quote, intends to criminalize improper treatment of objects of significant religious importance to a religious community. This comes in large part because of um, a spike in Quran burnings and protestations from the 57 member states of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, which I believe was founded in the wake of the Salman Rushdie satanic versus um, controversy of 1988. But this is significant to me because Denmark has long had a proud tradition of, uh, of opposing uh, these sorts of blasphemy laws. Um, in 2017, um, the then Danish prime minister proclaimed, I'm proud and happy that we live in a country where we have abolished the blasphemy provision and where you're allowed to be critical even in satire or cartoons of religious symbols. Um, but then it was you know, in August that the same uh, uh, person said that they were gonna do about face on it and, and a plurality of Danes in fact support the bill. There hasn't been a blasphemy law in Denmark since, since 19, 46, and I think it's not just Denmark, it's also Sweden that's looking at doing this. And this would apply not just to the crown, but also to the Bible. So I'm wondering how, as a ministry, you know, you feel about having a sacred text like the Bible or, or the Quran um, burned, uh, and then have that burning be criminalized under, under state statute. I don't think it's ever appropriate, no matter what faith you are of, to celebrate the burning of what others consider to be sacred, a sacred text. Mm -hmm. um, I just don't think it's appropriate and it's not something that we would celebrate. Mm. On the other hand, we believe in free speech, and um, so blasphemy laws we've seen used by governments to suppress all kinds of speech, and um, we believe, and I think the, our U.S. Constitution as well as international law confirms again and again that free speech is a fundamental right, and that means it extends to people you agree with and people you don't. Mm -hmm. There's um I've talked to some people who are kind of working on this this issue in Europe, and one of the challenges that they're having is there doesn't seem to be any support from Americans or American institutions or American politicians uh, in opposing um, the law that they're that they're trying to pass. Whereas pr previously there might have been, it's been uh, silent. Although it's starting to pick up a little bit, and there is. Um, you know, there's no real hope that the European Court of Human Rights will do much either. Um, if this case is brought there, um, the, the court has held, as my colleague, colleague Yasha Mushangama um, has pointed out, that gratuitously offensive uh, speech that's directed at religious speakers um, can be restricted. For example, in 2018, I believe the court decided that Austria didn't violate the human rights provisions when someone said that the Prophet Muhammad was a pedophile. Um, since according to some um, interpretations of, of, of Islam, Muhammad consummated his marriage with his wife who was a nine, so that wouldn't make it pedophilia, I guess, um, is the argument that goes. But um, 
yeah, I mean, it's a core belief that if you believe in freedom of expression, then you, you must believe it even when it's offensive or strikes at your core beliefs. Absolutely. And I, I think in terms of the stances that we've taken, um, we would be opposing those laws. There are mm-hmm. 79 countries that have blasphemy laws um, and a number of them that have what they call hate speech laws that fall under the blasphemy, which is the same kind. It's rooted in the same same premise. And it just so, uh, among other things, among a violate, in addition to a violation of human rights, you can't have self-government, you can't have democracy. Mm-hmm. If you hand the, the keys of the kingdom over to the state and what can and can't be said. Um, so it's just, I think for so many reasons, presents dangers. And, um, you know, Paul Coleman, who's their executive director of ADF International, continues to, to beat that drum in my own head on, um, we're supporting a case in Nigeria right now where there's a death penalty for a guy that um, he was brought before Sharia court and had some lyrics in his song. He's, he's Muslim mm-hmm. um, and he's literally facing the death penalty for it. Um, Mexico right for now. Simply for simply composing lyrics. lyrics. Yeah, wow. for the lyrics. Um, and we're before the Supreme Court of Nigeria. And y- Isn't someone- that Nigeria ruled under Sharia law? I mean, what's the, how's, how's the... Paul, that'd be a good question for Paul. Yeah, I agree. Um, but if we don't prevail at the Supreme Court of Nigeria, mm-hmm. um, he's done. I mean, th- this, this penalty is going to be imposed. Quite literally, yeah. And, and it's, it's just shocking. Mexico's having the same. I don't know if you've tracked that, but... No. We have, um, we have two cases in Mexico right now, um, and, and they're going after high-profile individuals. So Nigeria was the musician that was you know, fairly well-known, but then in Mexico, it's a congressman and a former congressman, and they've been call- they have been convicted of um, gender po- political gender violence and have to register now, had to, are supposed to issue a public apology simply because they took issue with the fact that transgender ideology isn't doesn't reflect biological realities. Let's talk a little bit about some of your Supreme Court cases. As I had mentioned previously, you've won 15 cases at the Supreme Court. It's a lot. Congratulations. How, when, when was ADF founded? We were founded in 94. So the way we think of that, that stat is we've had the privilege of playing a role in over 70 Supreme Court wins since 1994. But the 15 has been in the last 12 years where we've actually represented parties in the case. So among your cases are Masterpiece Cake Shop, right, with, involving the, um, the Christian baker who did not want to bake a cake for a same-sex wedding, a custom wedding cake. Um, one that we took a particular interest in, and you're going to have to forgive me, this is another <laughs> one of those names. I think you even know where I'm going with Uzabunum. this. Uzabunum. Uzabunum, yep. Um, which you want at the Supreme Court involving a, a, a campus preacher, right? Um, and most recently, 303 Creative v. Alenis. Um, let's start talking about 303 Creative v. Alenis. Uh, um, tell us the story of, of, of Lori. Sure. Well, Lori Smith, um, she grew up with her mom having a wedding boutique shop, and so she grew up in the shop designing all kinds of things for her. And This is in co- Colorado? Um, in Colorado, yes. Um, she's a native of Colorado mm-hmm. and always wanted to open her own design store store. She's a website and a graphic designer. Um, after college, and she went into the corporate world, into the government world, doing graphic design and website design, and realized that she really just couldn't pursue the projects that she loved. So she started her own business in 2012, and um, focusing on all kinds of projects, but wanting to pursue things that she really believed in. 
And so it was in 2016, she had kind of been up about three and a half years, wanted to go into wedding websites. Um, as if you've been married, gotten married in the last 10 years, I think we all know that that's a pretty hot business to be in and that um, there's a lot you can do with it creatively. And, and it was in a season where her beliefs about marriage were being challenged in the public square. So um, she's a Christian. She believes marriage is between a man and a woman. She hasn't always had that belief, but um, once she came to Christ, um, she changed her views on marriage. And at the same time, she's thinking about opening this new segment of her business. Jack Phillips and Masterpiece Cake Shop mm -hmm. is being, um, you know, relentlessly pursued by Colorado officials. And his case at that point hadn't gone up to the Supreme Court and been accepted by the Supreme Court, so the outcome wasn't known. She didn't know. She went to her pastor and said to her pastor, I'm thinking of doing this. I'm feeling called into this. I want to be able to tell stories that promote my faith view of marriage. And her pastor said, I, I think you should hold up um, and contact Alliance Defending Freedom mm -hmm. before you jump into that because you could get into trouble. And get into trouble how? I mean, what existed in... in um in Colorado that she could be prosecuted under? There, um, a number of states have public accommodation laws that include provisions that deal with sexual orientation and gender identity, and mm -hmm. Colorado was one of those states. And Colorado had essentially said, in Jack Phillips' case, yeah. that if he declined to create a custom wedding cake celebrating a same-sex wedding, that he would be breaking the law. And he would be subject to penalties, um, the it, this played out at the commission level, the administrative level first in Jack's case. And he basically lost a significant portion of his business. He was told that if he didn't design custom same-sex wedding cakes, he couldn't design other wedding cakes. Um, and since that was something that was a big part of his business, it took a huge toll on his family. He lost six of his 10 employees as a result. Mm -hmm. um, he also was ordered to essentially undergo re-education, training his employees that he was wrong to operate his business consistent with his faith, and chillingly was required to report to the commission on a quarterly basis every decision he where he declined to create a custom cake mm -hmm. so that they could then look at whether that broke the law. That Masterpiece Cake, uh, Masterpiece Cake Shop case, what year was that decided? Um, it was 2018 that the court, the Supreme Court ruled. And they didn't rule on the speech issue, correct? Correct. They ruled on the free exercise issue. So that's why we get 303 Creative, because it, um, it more squarely focused on the question of whether these sort of bespoke um, wedding websites are speech, right? And if they're speech, they're, they're, they're subject to a higher level, the, you know, these prohibitions, uh, like the public accommodations law on... Uh, on sort of like editorial discretion, for lack of a better word, um, would, would face a higher level of scrutiny, correct? Yes, and one of the reasons that the court, well, there were a number of reasons probably, I, I can speculate, that mm -hmm. the court didn't reach the free speech issue at that point, but one of them was they didn't need to. In Jack's case, when he went before that commission, in the hearing itself, they openly compared his religious beliefs to those who were held those religious beliefs held by slave owners and perpetrators of the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, they had a double standard that they had applied. So another gentleman had gone to other cake artists and asked for cake designs that um, 
essentially were derogatory, it had derogatory messages towards same-sex marriage, and those cake designers refused to design those cakes. Mm -hmm. And the commission ruled that they were within their First Amendment rights to say no, but that Jack was not. And so the court said, you can't apply a double standard, and you can't have religious hostility um, towards people of faith simply because you disagree with their view. So it kept the free speech arguments intact, but didn't address them. But I will say that three weeks later in the NIFLA decision in that same term, which is also our case, mm -hmm. the court did address those issues and started to lay the groundwork for the eventual 303 creative ruling. Well, so, okay, so in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, you do have examples of viewpoint discrimination, as you, as you just mentioned, right? Um, and you also have examples of religious hostility but it, it seems like the viewpoint discrimination question would be a question that would strike at the core of the free speech clause of the First Amendment, but they only ruled on this sort of hostility um, evidence. And, well, they also they also ruled on the double standard, but they applied it under the free exercise clause. Okay, yeah, so that's what I'm trying to get So you can't have at. a double standard under the free exercise clause either. And so that meant that they didn't necessarily need to decide, can cakes be speech? Mm -hmm. They didn't need to take that question on because instead they were able to protect Jack Phillips um, and rule in his favor without addressing whether in some instances cakes can be speech. Now Justice Kennedy wrote the majority decision in Masterpiece and says, you know, to his surprise, in, in some instances speech on these issues is going to be protected and it's, and he didn't say cakes can't be speech. Yeah. Um, he Wasn't just there said, a brief from uh, cake bakers and cake right. designers who said, yeah, cakes are speech, you know, we're artists. With pictures, with pictures. And there are a bunch of shows now, right, where uh, Cake Boss and all these other ones, which are all about these cake artists. There's no way you can say that cakes can't be speech. I think you can say not all cakes are speech. That's certainly true. So in this, in, let's, let's assume for all intents and purposes that cakes are speech. Uh, it sounds like you and I might agree on that, um, that wedding we websites, if they're bespoke, if they're customized to a particular client, um, are, are speech. Why should a public accommodation law, that is a law that seeks to ensure that every, anyone who's going out into a marketplace can be served regardless of their identity, not apply in those contexts where you have customized speech for clients? Well, I would even take issue with the premise of the question because I sure. think the public accommodation slots do apply in those instances. Um, but the court's ruling, um, first of all, in both Jack's case and in Lori Smith's and 303 Creatives, the court noted that these clients serve everyone. Mm -hmm. They serve whoever walks in their shops and they're making the decisions based on what the message is that's being requested, not based on the person that's requesting it. So in that way, they're not running afoul of public accommodations laws because they're focusing on the message. And that's been the test in our jurisprudence for many, many years. I mean, many years we've said, if the government is trying to regulate speech, um, is it affecting the speaker's message? And that's one of the ways you can sort of work through pretextual objections, right? Mm -hmm. You can also look, as the court did in Hurley and in other cases, and again in 303, to say, well, is this speaker otherwise serving people of the protected class? Would they do it in other contexts with other messages? And if the answer is yes, you know that they're not denying service because of a protected characteristic, which is an essential requirement under these public accommodation laws. Yeah, I think critics would say, though, that the only people who are having same-sex weddings are same-sex couples. So it's like intimately tied with this protected class, right? Well, that might be true, but I would suggest that the only people that are 
probably requesting, I don't think it's, it's true, but taking the premise is true. Mm-hmm. You could also say that the only people that would ask for a sign that says God is dead or atheist, mm-hmm. um, or that Islam is the only religion, they're probably Muslim. Mm-hmm. Um, does that mean that the Jewish adherents should have to create that message that violates their conscience? And hopefully you and I would agree mm-hmm. that the answer is no to that. But I would also say you can think of many other contexts, and even Justice Barrett raised hypotheticals during the oral argument um, of situations where others might request um, these messages and there would be an objection or other messages that Lori would object to. Think about a wedding planner as an example. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm just thinking about all the different scenarios where it's very clear that a service provider of some sort has editorial discretion because the services that they provide are expressive in some way and taking on certain clients is a reflection upon them and their identity and the speech they're gonna create. So I, I just, I'm, I'm trying to understand like what past cases would have left this as an open question because I'm sure you deal with this with, this with like uh, singer-songwriters, with um, playwrights, with speech writers, with advertising agencies. It seems to might come up all the time, but I guess maybe not in the context of speech that's so closely tied with a class that would be protected under a public accommodation law. I like, what makes it so novel? It just doesn't seem that novel to I, me. I don't think it's novel in the sense there's so much precedent on it that the rules are clear. It's just uh-huh. in this cultural moment. Um, you know, activists don't want to accept that, that principle here. So they're, they're challenging it. They're trying to change what the law is. But another example you could think of is, um, think of the play of Hamilton. Yeah. Um, I mean, if we took the position that every time there was an overlap between a protected characteristic and speech, um, the protected characteristic one, then you wouldn't have free speech rights. You wouldn't have Hamilton as an example. Yeah. Um, and, and so, and I think we need to realize under these public accommodation laws, they're not even recognizable compared to what they were when they were adopted. Um, many of them have a do- over a dozen protected characteristics now. Mm-hmm. Uh, some have up to 20. And there are at least 19 jurisdictions, at least when I argued the case um, in December of last year, 19 jurisdictions that even protect political ideology and political belief. That and one confuses apply, me. And what? they apply to like everybody. The soccer mom who's got the Etsy account, she's a public accommodation under these laws. Yeah, the, the political affiliation one confuses me because you know I think we have that sort of protection where we're sitting right now in D.C., um, although I could be wrong about that. No, you're right. So you have a Democratic, you know, oppo research firm. Would they have to take a Republican client if a Republican client came to them under those, you know, at least the interpretation of, of that yes. law? Ostensibly, I mean, yes. Yes. Does it ever get tried? I mean, it's like, does it ever get, like, tried? I mean, I just can't believe anyone would actually, like, maybe under the plain language of it, that would apply, but does anyone ever actually, DC wouldn't work if that applied. I know, <laughs> I know. I mean, think about a speechwriter. Think about all the different ways that would play out, but that is the law, and that is what Colorado's arguing for, and it's what a number of states argued for in the amicus briefs. We had 20 states that were on our side, and mm-hmm. I think they had some tw- nearly 20 on their side that were arguing essentially the state has unfettered authority to compel speech in these areas. And and they went through a number of, it felt like a shotgun approach, to be honest. It mm-hmm. was like, yes, we can do whatever we want, compel whatever speech we want, because we're just going to relabel speech as conduct. Um, and so that was their first argument, is any 
Oh, that's that's what they all do. Yeah, in any case involving free expression, yeah, it's, it's not it's speech, not it's speech, conduct. It's conduct. Yeah, so, yeah. so you know, we we sort of blew through that one um, mm -hmm. because that is the argument that they always make, which means that the Supreme Court's rejected it many times. Yeah. Um, the next one was essentially, well, okay, we might not be able to do that. If we can't do that, then if it's if it's speech that's on the same subject, we can compel it. So think about that in the marriage context, which is Lori Smith's context. So if you choose to speak in favor of opposite sex marriage, then because you've broached the topic, you have to speak favorably on all other views on marriage. Hmm. So it's essentially equivalent speech is what they called it. Um, and we could talk about that. And then there was the same words speech. They said, well, if it's the same words, we could at least compel the same words, even if the context changes. And that goes to your songwriter and um, performing artist. Yeah. You know, whether they have to, can you compel them to, to, to sing at the Republican National Convention because they performed at the Democrat one? Yeah. I would think not. After the case was decided this past summer, there was it the New Republic, um, came out with an article that said that this was essentially a fake case and you would probably be able to relay the facts uh, or their argument better than I could, but essentially, there was a piece of evidence that was introduced in the case after the case was filed, um, where a gentleman, I believe, um, was said to have filed a request or submitted a request to Lori to design a same-sex wedding cake. Um, what was it, seven years later after the case handed down, he said he had never done that, um, uh, despite the fact that the IP address associated with that submission was kind of in the area of where he was living at at the time. Um, in any case, people said after the case was decided that the case shouldn't have had standing to begin with. Uh, what's your response to that? Right. <laughs> um, it, it was incredibly frustrating. I have to say, since the 303 Creative case was decided, I don't think that we have seen um, in all of the other cases the type of response we have seen from activist journalists and the type of lies. I mean, they were calling for disbarment for criminal penalties against the lawyers that litigated it simply to undermine the legitimacy of the Supreme Court. If you know anything about pre-enforcement challenges, which is what Lori's case was, you don't need a request, uh, first of all. Yeah, can you explain what a pre-enforcement challenge so is? So pre-enforcement challenge is a hallmark of civil rights litigation. And the reason is you don't have to violate the law and put yourself in jeopardy in order to ask the court to rule that a law is unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. And that's particularly true in the area of free speech because you can think of all kinds of laws that could and have been passed that would chill speech, that would cause someone to not speak because they're afraid of being punished. Mm -hmm. And we have cases right now in other jurisdictions outside of Colorado where those artists are facing jail time. So, so jail time is even a potential penalty in situations like Lori's. And so is that the same as a facial challenge then? No, it's, it was an as-applied challenge. Uh -huh. So a facial challenge would be, court, we want you to strike down the public accommodation law in total. Okay. An as-applied challenge is, as the government is applying this law in this situation, it is unconstitutional. Hmm. So public accommodation laws in Colorado and everywhere else continue to apply to millions of transactions. And it's peacefully coexisted with... Uh, free speech rights for years and years without a problem. Where the problem occurs is when the state's trying to compel speech, and that makes that a very different situation. So, so I think that's an important point you just drew out, is that 
it sounds like you were not trying to strike down the law no. at all. Just the fact, the way that Colorado interpreted it as applied to Lori, who had asked Colorado, right, if it would be applied to her in this particular circumstances, and they said yes? Yes. Yeah. For seven years, they said uh -huh. yes. Um, so under you know the standing requirements in the court, um, you need to demonstrate that there's a credible threat of enforcement against you. That was the critical inquiry in, in the case. And certainly, Lori easily met that test of a credible threat of enforcement when they are the most aggressive jurisdiction in the United States that has been going after Jack Phillips. And noteworthy, they didn't just go after him once, they went after him twice. In addition, um, they continued to brief in their legal briefings that they would enforce the law against Lori and that they would prosecute her mm -hmm. should she violate the law. And they said that in a number of different ways. And you've gestured at this already or maybe said it explicitly, but Lori was willing to serve same-sex couples or... Um, she has gay clients. Yeah, but not with a customized wedding website. Right, it's the message. It's the so you know she has clients who identify as LGBT. Mm -hmm. It's it's about the message. She has clients who identify as Christian. She's going to decline their messages too. It's all about what she's being asked to say. But I don't want to leave the New Republic issue without saying as well that um, the request that came into her from this gentleman named Stuart with the name, address, phone number uh -huh. um, came in the day after she filed the lawsuit. Yeah, and she in terms of the court relying on it, of all the judges, the 12 judges that looked at the case, none of them cited a request as being a basis for having standing. It's not mentioned in the Supreme Court decision, and it wasn't necessary for standing. And it's important to realize that if Lori, Lori's been criticized for not calling that person that came in through her website, mm -hmm. she's been criticized for not calling him to try to determine if he really meant what he said, if it really was a request. Mm. Jack Phillips took a troll request over the phone, and that's the request that Colorado then pursued and brought charges against him on. <laughs> so she would have put herself in legal jeopardy had yeah. she really tried to get to the bottom of whether this guy was giving, having, going to have a real wedding or he was just trying to make. So they put up. you in a can't-win situation. Yeah. You know, if you call, then you get prosecuted. If you don't call, then people say you have a fake case. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, I, I think one one thing that people might say is that like, are people really going to associate this customized wedding website with the views of Lori? Mm -hmm. um, you know, um, or you can even you can even take a hypothetical someone who's ghostwriting a book for someone else. Like, the ghost in ghostwriting means that they are not at least publicly known to be associated with the words that they created. Do those distinctions matter in these sorts of cases or not? They don't. And I love that you brought up ghostwriter because that's like my first go-to hypothetical in that kind of a question is, should a ghostwriter be required to have to write something that violates their core convictions? The whole point of the First Amendment, um, the court has said, is to prevent the intrusion of the mind and the spirit, to force you not to have to say something in one breath that you would deny in the next. It's that you don't have to betray your convictions, that no individual does. So it, it doesn't really matter whether attribution would be in play. Think about the seminal cases of like Barnett, right? Yeah. Everybody knows the Barnett, the children that had to do the flag salute. Well, no one's going to think they, that that was something they, they made up. We know the flag salute. Or think of Wooly and the Mainers who drove around with the license plate and the court said, it doesn't matter that everyone knows they're required by law to ride around with a license plate. They can't be forced to have to carry a message that violates their core convictions. 
Um, before we move on from uh, 303 Creative, uh, I wanted to just quickly return to the point that I started with um, about the uh, fake case argument, which is this is something that happens all the time in public interest litigation, right? These sort of pre-enforcement challenges. Um, and it even in some cases, it even goes beyond that where public interest firms will set up like test cases. In fact, fake cases. There's this great radio program called Radio Lab, which is produced out of WNYC in New York City that did a whole that has a Supreme Court program. I forget what the name of it is. Uh, uh, More perfect. That's the name of the program. Um, and they did a whole uh, episode about test cases and how test cases have been fodder for the Supreme Court. You know, going back over a hundred years, you know, it talks about Plessy v. Uh, v. Ferguson starting out as a test case, I believe. Um, so, can you talk about that tradition in the public interest context as well? Um, because those those seem more fake than what is alleged to have been fake here, but they've been a tool of civil rights um, litigators for decades. Absolutely. I mean, and in, in in Lori's case and in the other cases that are pending right now involving these issues. Um, there have been threats of enforcement and many pre-enforcement challenges. It's not nearly as clear um, as, as what we have in these situations, nor the penalties even as draconian as some of these you know, photographers are facing, as I said, six-figure fines and jail time. Um, but it is a hallmark of the civil rights uh, litigation. It's used by the left constantly. In fact, um, I read a stat that if you look back, I think it's all the way back to 1900 or so, Every decade, the court had at least one pre-enforcement challenge, and in something like the last 15 years or 10 years, they've had more than a dozen. Yeah, sure. So this is so common, um, but I think we're living in a moment where some are desperate to undermine the legitimacy of the Supreme Court, and they're looking for anything they can, even if it's misrepresentation. So you had a bit of an incident back in March of 2022 at Yale uh, that obviously, <laughs> okay, captured, <laughs> obviously captured our attention here at FIRE. You were invited uh, to speak about Uzubanum Boonam um, there with Monica Miller, who is an advocate with the American Humanist Association. Um, sounds like you might not agree with her on much, but you agreed with her on, on this case. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about what trend Transpired on that day in March of, of 2022. Yeah, I, I never, I never really expected what happened. Um, Nobody I'm, ever does. I have to say <laughs> that like, it's like uh, with the people we end up helping. They're like, you know, I, I've I've been seeing this kind of like cancel culture thing happen or this free speech on campus thing happen, and, but I never expected it would get to me. I, Ilya Shapiro, yes, know, yes, George, he was said just that. before me uh, um, <laughs> in terms of he had something on it was California campus, I think. Yeah, oh, um, uh, that was Hastings, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So Hastings. he was just like a few weeks, I think, before the Yale incident. Uh -huh. um, but still, I just didn't. Mine was a little bit different. Um, I was invited by the student chapter of the Federal Society. We were going to speak on. Um, the importance of free speech, actually. And Uzabunum was a case that dealt with a student at a public college who wanted to share his faith, and there were speech codes, speech zones, the need for a permit. They just gave him the runaround, mm -hmm. not once but twice. Did he go to different campuses? Because I think I described no. him as like a campus preacher, but I, I'm wrong about that. Right. He correct the record. No, okay. he, was, he did not go to different campuses. He, he was a student at Georgia Gwinnett College. 
he wanted to share his faith. He stood um, outside in front of one of the buildings and was talking to those who wanted to talk with him and handing them some literature and was told that Georgia Gwinnett had a speech zone, which occupied all of less than 1% of the campus, so a mm -hmm. place that he had to speak in. You, you'd be very yeah. familiar with that. Um, and he had to get a permit um, that he could only do it at certain times of the week. I think it was less than 10% of the week um, he could freely share his faith on campus. Mm -hmm. So he actually jumped through all those hoops and got the permit, got his time, went out. And the second time, they shut him down again, threatened him with discipline, possible expulsion if he continued to share his message because someone who had was listening to it was offended by it, a la Finland. Yeah, um, right. That's where you see those trends. Yeah. Um, and so in the end, the case that went before the Supreme Court was whether if your civil rights are violated by the government, um, do you have to put a price tag on that? Do you have to prove economic harm and the amount of economic harm in order to demonstrate that your rights have been violated in order to win your case? Or instead, can you do what Georgia did, which was they changed their unconstitutional policy for students in the future. Mm -hmm. They waited essentially for the ruling in the case until Chike Uzubunum graduated yeah. so that they could moot the case and never have a decision on the merits. And we had filed- This happens all the time, right? Yes. Because students are often in college for four on. years and they just kind of wait them out. Yes, that's exactly what they do. And FIRE was involved, um, ACLU was involved. There were a number of cross ideological groups that were involved recognizing that it doesn't even just apply in speech. It's think about search and seizure, um, free exercise violations in prison, it happens a lot. Um, and so we were able to prevail in that case, but the goal on the Yale campus was to demonstrate how ideological opponents can come together on an issue and recognize that free speech is something that we all value and should support. And Monica was amazing that day, um, and I can certainly share what happened if, if you want to yeah. go there now in terms of the response well, well, I mean, to such a controversial you, topic. Did you have much time to speak? Uh, how, how, so there were 120 or so students who were attending this discussion. Um, and you were shouted down, moderator was shouted down, there were chants, there were pounds on classroom walls, and some report the floor had shook. <laughs> and the event was unable to proceed. I believe you were escorted along with Monica by police um, from, from the building. So uh, how, how far did you get into the event before this all happened? And, and what prompted it happening? Well, I'm I mean, assuming it was you. <laughs> I hadn't said anything. Um, I, I don't want to speak for Monica, but I have spoken with Monica. Or your after mere presence, it. I um, say. And, and I would say, I mean, they were coming after her before the event even started, as well as me. So before the event even started, there were things being yelled mm -hmm. um, at us, you know, criticizing her for platforming me mm -hmm. um, and just really kind of going after her for that, going after the professor who's a longtime professor at Yale. Um, dearly loved going after her for sharing the platform with me. Yeah. Um, and then even the students yelling at the conservative students. And I can say conservative students because the room was not mixed. You could see in one section there was a small group of students and the rest of the room was filled with signs, all kinds of different students wearing kinds of things that would express different things mm -hmm. and um, a lot of jeering and things that were going was going on. So before I even took the, the podium, it started. 
Mm. And there's a little video which you may have seen. Yeah, um, I remember we had a more difficulty with this incident than some other ones in kind of piecing together mm -hmm. the whole scope of what happened. Well, I mean, those who would be on the left, many of them thought, oh, I think I deserved it and that it, they couldn't believe that it had happened the way that it did. Mm -hmm. um, and the video was nothing compared to what happened. I mean, just that was like the very beginning of it. Um, it got much, much worse. And, but, you know, I'm thankful to a number of people who took the time to really dig into it. I didn't say anything to anyone after. I, I wasn't, I just was like, wow, that was something. Yeah. And next thing I knew, it was actually the Yale student paper that reached out for a comment because they were complaining that they felt that the police shouldn't have been called. Mm. Um, and that quickly turned on them because as others started to look into it. Who was complaining, the, the Yale paper? Yeah. Oh. The, well, the students, the, the students that Over were there. protesting were the ones that said they felt unsafe because Yale had to call in outside police mm. to protect us. How'd and, you feel? <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess it doesn't matter, I right? will say, it's, it's you know, it's, it's the first time that I ever, and the last time, um, was literally, I mean, I was shaking. And I, it, was, yeah. it was something. Yeah. Um, our president CEO, Greg Lukianoff, was the one who filmed the incident at, in Yale's courtyard featuring Nicholas Christakis back in 2015, right? And just this sort of composure that Nicholas Christakis had as he was literally encircled by students yelling at him, uh, almost superhuman, right? I mean, you were, in, in that case as well, walking into the Thunderdome and you don't know what's going to happen. Um, you don't know what's going to happen, but Yale didn't do anything to try and get the students out of the room that were disrupting the event? Nope. And there was an assistant dean in the room yeah. for the whole thing. I mean, it was just, it was so disturbing on so many levels. Um, I just, I remember thinking during it, I may be the only person that has my views that they'll interact with in a meaningful way. And mm. so I was intent to try to maintain my composure and also show kindness um, so that there was nothing that could be used later. Like an excuse, yeah. Um, yeah, and, and I really, I do feel compassion for, um, you know, some of the things that they were yelling and saying, you have to have really come from a place of hurt, yeah. I think, to, to have that view. Well, un unfortunately, those sorts of incidents are not uncommon. You mentioned Ilya Shapiro went through something similar. He was shouted down. He just stood at the podium for, I believe, a very extended period of time and just, didn't say anything and just allowed them to shout their invectives at him, preventing him, of course, from speaking and delivering the talk. Again, then you have uh, just this year, Judge Duncan at Stanford. Um, and, and as you noted, sometimes saying things or, or getting sharp with them in response is what they'll hang their hats on afterward to justify their actions. And I don't know if anything that they alleged Judge Duncan to have said was true or not, but um, doesn't change the principle, of course, that you should not shut down an event or take it over and make it your own. Uh, and then you had Ann Coulter last year at Cornell. And that situation was unique because it wasn't a mob of students all shouting at the same time and kind of overwhelming the speech. It was one student stood up, played clown music, or, um, used a like blow horn or something, escorted out by police to Cornell's credit. And then another student would stand up. It's almost like playing whack-a-mole. And then that student would get stand, uh, escorted out. And then another student would stand up. So they got creative with their tactics. How long are you going to do that? Are you going to escort everyone out um, for you know extended period of time? Um, and then we had at SUNY Albany this year as well, Ian Hayworth, a conservative commentator, who 
uh, was set to give a speech about free speech on campus and students uh, did a you know, conga line in front of him, shouted things like, this is what free speech looks like, hint it doesn't. Um, and, and then you, you get like absurd justifications for it. Like uh, Guy Benson was set to speak at Brown in 2018 and there was a petition to prevent him from speaking and the justification was because he believes in capitalism he is a white supremacist and fascist so it's like it's just like an expanding web of justifications to prevent folks yeah from it's speaking. hard to be on the right side that you're supposed to be on um, there's just so many different issues that come into play and I, I think it was also really disturbing to see it happen with law students yeah um, you know literally if you can't engage with arguments and people that you don't particularly care for you're not going to be a good lawyer and we're not going to have a good justice system. Yeah. Um, don't have a ton more time, but I do want to ask you about two more cases you have ongoing. Um, I got an email from you this morning <laughs> or from someone on your team oh, this morning about, like, <laughs> uh, about Liam and oh. his shirt, his t-shirt that he wore to his middle school one day that said there are only two genders. Um, he had witnessed his school hold various pride month or pride themed events and uh, decided that he was going to wear this shirt that said there are only two genders to his school in Middleborough, Massachusetts. Um, staff pulled him out of class, told him he had to either take his shirt off or be sent home from class. He decided, send me home uh, and worked with you guys to file a lawsuit, but you lost at the trial court level. Um, I'm trying to understand, I hope you'll help me understand how this is much different from Mary Beth Tinker's black armband protesting the Vietnam War. You know, in that case, of course, uh, the court held that they could regulate substantial disruption, but can a simple message on a piece of clothing um, justify a, asking one of the students to take off that piece of clothing. Unfortunately, I think we've seen a number of cases where it, where it has in the courts, and I, I've always kind of referred to that substantial, substantial disruption carve-out as a giant hole that it, you could drive a truck through. Um, but it opens the path to not only viewpoint discrimination, but also a heckler's veto, because you know, protesting students or administrators, all they need to do is get up in arms in order to kind of meet that substantial disruption test. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that case, what it means, and what you're hoping to get out of it. Sure. Well, we're hoping to get the right ruling, which is that Liam has every right to wear a t-shirt to school on the subject of gender identity, just as the other students had the right and continue to have the right to wear a t-shirt that states what their viewpoint is. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you're spot on to say we see um, judges using the substantial disruption in ways that I don't think it was intended and in ways that actually violate the court, the high court's precedent. Mm -hmm. And so we have a number of cases actually involving that standard now and trying to urge the Supreme Court to continue to, to make it clear to the lower courts. And we have one case involving teachers right now where... Yeah, Grants um, Pass, right? Yeah, yeah, that, that case where there wasn't even a complaint you know, filed by a, a student or a parent. There was no instance of disruption, but it was a, a school librarian that happened to see a post on social media. Um, and, and so how you define substantial disruption is, is critical. And was that what the trial court relied on in ruling against you in that case? I, I understand it's getting appealed to the First Circuit. Um, it, it relied on several different bases it relied on to rule against us, and all of them are being taken up. I mean, I just I think it's such a clear case that we should be able to prevail on. Um, but it's also concerning to me that we have so many others that are still in play in other circuits, too, with that same issue. As I mentioned, the teachers with the Ninth Circuit 
Um, substantial disruption was a big core of that case as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then I, I'm sure that fire seeing this instance of even the new areas that are opening up where um, they're using harassment policies and things to basically issue no contact orders against students who simply give voice to their opinions in class as other students are doing and then find themselves without any due process facing a no contact order, um, which is you know one of our cases we just resolved just this last this year mm-hmm. um, involving Maggie DeYoung, where she um, was an art therapy student and a no contact order was issued against her um, without them hearing her side with simply because she was asked about her position uh, concerning her faith and some other issues. She shared that position. And not only did the school say she couldn't come near these three students that said they felt microaggressions against them, mm-hmm. she not only couldn't come near them in campus and would have to leave the room, but the, they tried to apply the order off campus to, no. the, to yeah. Starbucks and all those places. So there's just no end to, I think, the the creativity of government officials who only want their own perspectives to be heard on campus. Uh, So Kristen, we are reconvening here about a week and a half after we spoke in Fires DC offices. And I I asked you to come on the show because in the intervening time, there have been two kind of high profile pieces about uh, your organization. One was in the Washington Post and it was about your guys' litigation tactics, which we talk about a little bit in our original conversation, but I want to bring up again in the context of this article. And then there was another very long uh, profile in The New Yorker about ADF's history and kind of your organizational strategy. I want to focus for the, the, you know, the purposes of this kind of final segment on the Washington Post article, because it seems to make uh, some allegations that ADF has done something untoward uh, in its First Amendment litigation cases in particular, uh, its free speech cases, namely in cases involving the challenges to anti-discrimination laws that are applied to vendors whose services are expressive. Um, you argue these applications, as we discussed previously, uh, unconstitutionally compel speech. Um, these vendors, as our listeners will recall, include photographers, videographers, artists, uh, stationary uh, creators, and most famously, of course, cake baker- bakers and website designers um, They who don't want to provide their services, um, which are arguably expressive, um, for same-sex weddings due to their religious convictions. Now, the allegations in the Washington Post article seem to boil down to three things. One, that these were fake companies that were sometimes founded just before the lawsuits were filed and that stopped providing their services after the lawsuits or litigation ended. Two, that ADF lawyers were affiliated uh, or ADF-affiliated lawyers, sometimes not ADF staff attorneys, were involved in setting up the companies, including preparing incorporation documents and uh, company policies. And then finally, that ADF took pictures of clients that include stage scenes uh, involving ADF employees. Now, I know in the previous conversation, we talked about test cases and kind of the history uh, of civil rights groups um, preparing test cases to challenge perceived unconstitutional or unjust laws. So I just want to give you this opportunity to address mainly those three allegations and how you and ADF are kind of thinking through them. Sure. Well, I would say that the the Washington Post article is misleading both in terms of what it says and incomplete in terms of what it doesn't say. Um, There are a number of ways I can respond. I think, first of all, our clients are real people with 
real businesses that want to engage in the wedding industry. And some had already begun to do so when suit was filed and some simply wanted to do so. And the law provides the right to Americans to be able to challenge laws if they want to enter into a particular area and that would violate the law. They don't have to break the law before they challenge the law if it's unjust. Um, In terms of kind of addressing sort of point by point, help walk me through this so I don't forget any, but um, I think it's important to set the context uh, for how these cases came about. And if you recall in 2012, I think we talked earlier a little bit about Jack Phillips and um, and the three other cases that essentially came in a six month period that were widely publicized. And I can tell you, and I'm sure that this is Fire's experience as well, when, when you represent a famous client and we represented the most famous cake artist in the history of America, I suspect, <laughs> um, you tend to get calls of people who are facing similar threats. You get those inquiries. And that certainly was our experience. We get about six to 10,000 requests a year during the period that we're talking about included the pandemic. Um, and during that pandemic, we exceeded 10,000 requests and calls and emails that came in. So we were inundated with these kinds of requests and we were inundated largely by people of faith because that's while we serve people of all faiths, um, we're predominantly known in religious communities. And so it was those artists that were caught in the crosshairs that contacted us. Now, in terms of um, you know what we did with those inquiries, certainly we have a wide network of attorneys. They're in private practice. I was one of them before I even joined ADF. And we want to ensure when we're filing a case that the client is in the best legal position possible. So I can imagine and that certainly if someone isn't incorporated or they're wanting to start a business, we will ensure that they can start that business and hopefully have the corporate shield in the process um, or things like that, have the right policies in place. But again, I think it's important to emphasize here that these are real people with real cases. And what I found especially alarming was two things about the Post article. One was that it it deceptively um, ignored what the law is in terms of pre-enforcement challenges. But two is that it actually ignored the time period in which these cases were filed. Not only the history, the threats of six-figure fines and penalties and jail time that people were facing, but also the fact that these cases go on for nearly a decade. Many of them went on for six, seven, eight years. And the Washington Post is complaining that during that time, people got married or people had babies or people moved out of state or they might've gone part-time because their family dynamics changed. Um, I, I think that's I a found the, Yeah. I found, I found the, the information about, I think it was one of your plaintiffs in Kentucky moving to Florida in the middle of a lawsuit. Um, and this was somehow evidence that the case wasn't real. I was like, if, if, ADF was controlling this cases, they would they would not tell their plaintiff or they would advise their plaintiff to not move to Florida in the middle of the litigation. Um, I believe she was a photographer, but I might not be remembering quite, uh, correctly. Uh, we talked about this a little bit in our previous conversation. Test cases uh, date back to Plessy v. Ferguson, where civil rights groups are trying to set up a challenge to what's perceived as an unjust uh, law. Uh, Rosa Parks was specifically selected um, for her you know, various skills and characteristics um, to try and sit at the front of the bus, for example. Um, I, I'd be interested in seeing, you know, the Washington Post take a look at at other public interest <laughs> law firms uh, and seeing kind of what they do to set up their cases. But they, they do talk about that a little bit in the article about the NAACP, um, for example, 
working with folks to challenge other anti-discrimination laws, I think, pertaining to housing. Um, it's my understanding that it's fairly prevalent. And I, I remember reading a, a, or listening to, I should say, a podcast by, uh, I think it's called More Perfect, and it's about the Supreme Court. And they did a whole episode in 2016 about test cases in the context of uh, the challenge to affirmative action. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and they dive into this. So I, I'll put that into the show notes for our listeners. Um, but I, I, I did want to ask because, and I re- recognize, and we've only got a few moments here, um, we had talked before about how you have something like 4,500 affiliated attorneys who provide legal services to um, to churches and, and, and other religious groups. Do, would those groups include these sort of for-profit corporations? Or are they mainly directed at providing legal services outside of the litigation context to uh, churches and ministries? All of the above. Um, so, you know, for example, my practice was for 16 years, I practiced in Seattle and I practiced on both sides of the line, litigation and business and um, would sometimes do work with Alliance Defending Freedom and assist them when they had help. And sometimes they would give me grants on cases. That's a program that ADF has as well, so that I could be able to practice in these areas and defend freedom in my own neighborhood. So um, the services apply both to for-profits and to nonprofits. It, we don't really make a distinction. The distinction is made on what the issue is they're asking for help with. And so if it's within um, the areas that we've already talked about, then we will do our best to help them. And sometimes we're able to help ourselves. Other times we'll refer it out and we don't always track what we're referring out, but we want to ensure that people, if we can get them help, they get the help they need. And and I think it's also important to remember that in these pre-enforcement challenges, all, to have standing, which is a very clear doctrine in the court, you simply need to establish that there's a credible threat of enforcement. And when the government says we're coming after you, that's a credible threat of enforcement. Um, And in all these cases, the courts themselves evaluated whether standing was there. They evaluated whether it was a fake case and they found that it was not. And the Post kind of neglects to touch on the fact that so many different judges have already looked at this issue. It cites a couple that said, this seems like it might not be real, but it doesn't cite any of the many judges that said, yes, this meets the standard. Yeah. The the interesting thing about this article is not that it alleges that 303 Creative was a fake case, but that some of the cases that you cite to justify, to express the sort of trend were fake, were fake cases. Um, but as you mentioned in the, in the 303 Creative case, which was a pre-enforcement challenge, it, it was stipulated by the state of Colorado that the anti-discrimination law would be applied to 303 Creative. Well, but in, even in the cases that they cite, that we cited, you know, one was an Eighth Circuit decision. Another um, was, I think, out of Kentucky, the Chelsea Nelson case, New York, Emily Carpenter. Um, those cases are still ongoing. The court has inquired whether they're fake cases and whether they're standing and has found that they are. there is standing. There is a credible threat. There's actually jail time that's being threatened to be enforced. Um, and in the case of Telescope Media Group and the Eighth Circuit, I mean, those were filmmakers that faced jail time. So it, it's trying to essentially create an issue to undermine um, essentially the work that we're doing, not realizing or perhaps ignoring the fact that they are undermining the hallmark of civil rights litigation. In, in many of the cases, even the ones that you mentioned, they're using testers. These aren't even real people that are in, wanting to engage in real businesses. So um, we're not even talking about testers in this instance. That was, um, 
uh, that more perfect podcast episode that I was referencing, the host in it talked about how there was some sort of Supreme Court case in the early 20th century that said that these test cases were protected under the First Amendment. I, I can't track that case down, but it might exist. I believe it there does. was something. Com- it does. Um, do you know it off the top of your head? I, I read it this morning and I can't remember, but I, I think it may have been an ACLU case. Um, oh, okay. Well, I, if you, if you I, know I it, send you- it to me. <laughs> Actually, if you go to our website, um, we have an article on our website that says something to the effect of, does ADF make up cases in response to this Post Washington Post article? And you can see a very detailed response that we have, and it cites the law review articles that have been written on these test cases, as well as a number of the test cases themselves. Um, yeah. I believe there was a case that. coming out of the D.C. Circuit, too, involving um, some animal rights group uh, as mm-hmm. well. Uh, dealing with test cases. Anyway, um, I, uh, Chris, I know you got to run. Um, b- before we go, did you want to say anything about the New Yorker piece, which was a longer profile, or do you have <laughs> time for that? <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen an article with so many contradictions and flaws. I mean, suggesting that um, we're crazy and making up controversies involving gender identity, and yet at the same time, um, suggesting that we're successful and we have all these clients. And, and I think the New Yorker article misquoted, mischaracterized, excluded interviews. It was dripping with bias and, frankly, I think a little bit of chauvinism. Um, but it, it's very inaccurate. And on the other hand, I'm trying to take it with a grain of salt and say, well, they must think we're doing something right. Apparently, we're crazy and we can still win. Well, Kristen Wagner, I appreciate you coming on the show and and talking with us today. And I hope we get an opportunity to do it again sometime soon. Well, thank you. I love fire and um, I am so privileged that we get to partner in protecting speech. We partner a lot. And so, you know, this, I I think we filed a brief in Grants Pass, right? An amicus brief? I think so. You filed a brief in a number of cases and I hope that, I think that we've reciprocated the the favor (laughs) quite a few times too. Well, to our listeners listening, as you know, um, a video version of this conversation will be available on YouTube or on social media if you want to engage. And we take email feedback at, so to speak, at thefire.org. And until next time, thank you again for listening.